Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hello, Micah. Bringing the energy. I always try to. Saying hi that energetically gets me in the zone. Good. Well, where are you right now? You're not in your usual Philly location. That's true. I am, as they say, in the Finger Lakes. Wow. I'm hanging out in the Finger Lakes, which isn't far from where I grew up. So I'm familiar with a bunch of the wineries and like uh, dreary landscape, which I love. It literally <laughs> yeah. snowed yesterday. It was like wild, crazy snowing. It was nice. Everything's so far out there. We're like surrounded by farms. I'm drinking a Riesling. It's great. I love that. And how you doing? Good. It's great to be back on the pod. Last week we had DJR. His episode get released and that was so much fun. And now we're back to our regular programming with a juicy little deep dive into Adobe fonts today. Yeah, that's the plan, huh? So lots of good stuff coming in our Nerd Alert. But before then, we have a few links to chat about. The first one coming all the way from LinkedIn (laughs) is an example of an alphabet designed with artificial intelligence. This was posted by Martin Coopers, and he generated a bunch of different letter forms that look like futuristic neon signs, very minimal, but all very representative letter forms. And it's just pretty crazy to think these were all done in AI. They look like very realistic photographs of letters. Which when we say AI, we've talked about AI a bunch this year. This has been a hot topic. I think you particularly mentioned somewhere that it's designed with mid-journey, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mid-journey. And it's one of those text-to-image prompt things. You write in what you want it to be with whatever specifications you can imagine of like, draw the letter X in an 80s neon title sequence or something, you know? We don't really Mm -hmm. know what the prompts were for this particular experiment, but they came out fairly consistent style-wise, aesthetically. Yeah. Which is interesting, because that's pretty hard when you're just describing text. And he also has another example in the comments of this post. And again, photorealistic. These obviously look like 3D renderings rather than the neon atmospheric ones, but just 3D renderings of different letters in inflatable material, in glossy material, metallic material, stuff that it looks like it would take several hours on Blender or a 3D software to make, just being outputted by this AI. It's pretty incredible. I have to say, I'm a little shocked at like the pace of how we're moving with Dolly and Midjourney and OpenAI, all of these software and the platforms making this possible because I feel like people have been talking about AI for ages, but it was like a lot of people that were already entrenched in a tech environment professionally or personally. And now it just seems like everyone can have a piece of the pie. And this is, I think, our (laughs) second project we've talked about with typography being made with AI with natural language text being converted to images. I don't know. What do you think? It is interesting, right? For a few years, AI has been like an undescribed feature of some app that basically often results in some sort of personalization or recommendation or something. And that's Mm -hmm. what they called AI. And it was just behind the scenes, like 
we have AI behind this suggesting things to you. Everybody got familiar with the output of Netflix's recommended movies to watch. And so we didn't really think about that in a much more complicated context because there was nothing much to see with it. And then somebody started experimenting with, oh, it would be cool if you just wrote out a thing and it turned it into an image. And then I think that idea went from somebody made a prototype, somebody else was like, oh, I could make that too. And it spread to a bunch of people and then that blew up. Yeah. I think a lot of software at this point, if you make something and put it out there and it's popular, somebody will make an open source version of it. Somebody will make a competitor that's pretty similar. Somebody will make a knockoff that's exactly the same. Yeah. And that's what happened. And because they're all improving behind the scenes, all of them are getting better at like this weird, wacky pace. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast, but we were using AI recently to help compose some book covers. They were not used in the final book cover, but we had like a day and a half to design a book cover at work. So we were uh, trying to figure out compositions and illustration styles. And I used Dolly software to like really help me accelerate that process and not necessarily use it in the final image. But adopting new technology, especially at workplaces, is usually a slow process, but something that's so user-friendly and just no learning curve, it's going to be incredible to see how much further that goes than I think other AI we've talked about in the past. As soon as you say like you had like a day to do it, it's not like you couldn't have designed an old book cover in a day. You could have. Mm -hmm. It's just now you can have crazier ideas and have them make the final cut. Yeah. Which is pretty nuts. The future is here. I'm just imagining pretty soon movie studios or even like Netflix or something being like make a movie poster maker where you're like, hey, we need something in the style of Indiana Jones with Luke Wilson mm -hmm. and a cartoon teddy bear. Yeah. You know, in a triangular composition. And suddenly that's like the movie poster that gets put out. I think there is still going to be movie posters that require more artistry, but it's certainly plenty of movie posters that want to feed into those tropes because they know people that Indiana Jones-esque movie posters are going to go see Luke Wilson in the latest one. And that's like <laughs> no, I mean, if there win. was actually a movie with Luke Wilson, you know, in like the action adventure yeah. movie or something, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, But exactly. it, it's funny how quickly, I mean, this is what you're saying, right? How quickly it becomes just a tool to put in the arsenal. Yeah. Or it's kind of like, once upon a time, lettering artists were probably like, fonts, that's cheating. You know, that's stupid. That's not, you don't get all the character that you would do if you made it by hand. Yeah. And it turns into just this tool where sometimes lettering is the right choice. Sometimes using a font is the right choice. Good way to bring it back to, to the type world. I like that. Well, definitely worth checking out, no matter what you feel about OpenAI or MidJourney or any of those. It's exciting to see where these jumping off points are going. And I think everyone can start imagining where they're going to go in the future with stuff like this. Indeed. Our next article, lovely headline, color fonts are dead, in parentheses, not really, but kind of. So fun. <laughs> when you say it so seriously. <laughs> I love it. Not really, but kind of. <laughs> so I get to pretend we're like news anchors here. <laughs> this is from Robin Rendell, who I believe we've chatted a little bit about his writing before. He talks about all things like lettering, fonts for the web, books about type, specimens, all sorts of things, typography. And he put this out a few weeks ago. And it was a little bit like, hey, 
remember these these things called color fonts? Remember that we were super excited when it was like the new frontier and now we can barely even remember they exist. And then every once in a while there's like new ones that come out and there's developing software and they are actually really cool, but not enough people are using them. So they haven't gone mainstream yet. <laughs> Those are all the inquiries I've gotten out of this, but uh, curious how you feel as someone that's working on the web a little bit more. I feel like have some good background on the color font world. I mean, it's kind of true, right? He's basically going in saying like, hey, these are cool, but have you seen them used? Me neither. <laughs> and then he was like, you know, maybe what I got out of this was like, maybe the reason is because you can't really customize them. They're so detailed and mm-hmm. the colors are pre-chosen because mm-hmm. that's kind of the point. It's like it's a pre-colored font. It would be really difficult to even customize them, especially in something like CSS. Yeah. So if the colors that the font was designed with don't match the colors that you want to use in your designs, you can't use it, which is totally fair. Yeah. And he points out, too, like they're kind of just weird. And there's like a link in the last paragraph. He literally says they are extremely weird and points to this website where somebody made a font out of a drawn castle. And it's like, type your own castle. And you like type letters and the letters correlate to illustrations, like hand-drawn illustrations of towers and walls and stuff. And it's totally useless and silly. And it is legit. I mean, it's like, what the heck am I going to use this for? That's always been my impression with color fonts. But I think Robin gives an example of this new typeface called Nabla by Type Archer. And it combines the power of... SVG fonts, which are like fonts based off of vectors. And the problem with color fonts originally is that you couldn't change the color, but this new technology in Nabla, I think they're calling it color V1, allows you to change the colors with code if you incorporate it on your CSS uh, code. Which to be fair, I have not seen that used. There are a couple browsers that support it, but not all of them, and generally, when it's not all support, it's pretty dangerous to use that in a real site. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. I think we're with Robin on this one. Color fonts yeah. are dead. Not really, but kind of. <laughs> it's like variable fonts. We're like, eventually, I just accepted that variable fonts weren't going anywhere, and maybe there's a couple benefits to it, but for yeah. the most part, I'm like, do we need this? Can't we invent a better way of installing fonts rather than a version of a font file that you can pre-color, you know? Like, why do we need that? Yeah. I feel like it's funny how still type designers are really trying to push people to use variable axes on variable fonts. Like, I feel like I hear that from type designers being like, check out the variable font file, not just like the ones with the weights. And day-to-day, I have not felt it necessary to use variable fonts yet. But I'm still waiting with you. I'm still on that bandwagon. (laughs) Like, I don't talk about it much because it's just there's no point. But it's like, even when there's like a variable axis of weight, I get the benefit of having one font file instead of 100. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't need that much control. I don't need to pick weight 150. Most of the time, just like, give me 100 or 400. I don't care. Yeah. It'd be one thing if I was like often using several weights of a typeface and was trying to keep track of it using a slider, but I usually only use like two or three. 
When I meant several, I meant like yeah. six or seven. Like I'm never using more than like right. two or three weights of things typically. Maybe an optical right. size here or there. It is just a weird thing. It's like a grocery store with too many choices. There's so much psychology of choice that has been done in other areas where for whatever reason, variable fonts are like, yeah, let's give everybody every possible option. And it's just, I don't know why that's a good thing. I don't know. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you on this one. But but always good to check in on the color fonts world, see how they're doing. They're still around. Yeah, they're still I mean, kicking. maybe eventually it'll be useful. Yeah. The one area that I think partially it is intended for that maybe will be useful is emojis. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that's that's like part of the reason that it matters. It's just it doesn't matter that much at the moment. Yeah. I'm with you. All right. Next article from our friends over at Smashing Magazine. You don't need a UI framework. So what is a UI framework, Micah? And why don't you need one? (laughs) I love when you don't get excited about an article and you're like, hey, Micah, how about you (laughs) explain this one? Which is fair. This is kind of a little bit of a developer-y article, but it's still relevant if you're doing stuff online. It's by a guy that I follow who's actually a really great teacher. He teaches JavaScript and CSS. If you don't know CSS, he has like courses and stuff on teaching CSS. His name is Josh Camo. But it's all about, I mean, you know, you know libraries like uh, Material Design, right, from Google. Yeah, so that's basically like a library of icons stylized by Google. Like, that's what I think of. But tell me if I'm incorrect. Yeah, no, I mean, it's basically like a Google design system that they designed for their own products. And then Mm -hmm. they made it available thinking, hey, if you don't don't have one for yourself and you just want to make something with a thoughtful framework that we put a lot of work into, here you go. Use this. When you say design system, is that like icons or more than... I mean, like more than icons. Is it like, give me a few other things that might be in this system. I mean, it's not necessarily always with icons. In Google's case, it's with icons. But it's like, here's the code to make a button look a certain way. You know, make it oh, okay. look clickable and interact when you click on it. Mm. Or here's what a form field should look like. Here's what an input should look like. Or type styles of like. So even things like micro interactions might be in there. Like, how does this button look? when you hover over it yeah okay yeah and there's another really famous one too called bootstrap that was by twitter a long time ago okay which oh my gosh we're not even talking about twitter today twitter's crazy but (laughs) it's been design systems that a company makes for their own sites and so that's going to involve headlines and body copy and sometimes grids and forms and buttons and all kinds of stuff like that i'm following cool a lot of them end up open sourced and so a lot of people, especially a lot of coders who aren't designers, will reach for those because they're tools that are made to be coded with. And if you don't know much about design or for whatever reason don't have the capacity to be designing something, it's way easier to be like, yeah, I'll put this class of button on it and it'll look like a button and people will know that it's a button. Which is one of the arguments in this article of why they exist is like the familiarity of it. And because a lot of people use them, because a lot of times the big companies that everybody knows will open source them. 
So Bootstrap being a great example for many years, almost every website looked like it was made with Bootstrap because it was because mm. everybody knew Twitter and they open sourced it so everybody could use it. And part of it is saving time. Part of it is familiarity. A lot of the point here is his idea of develop a design intuition is how he describes it. <laughs> when it comes down to it, that's basically saying like, learn a little design. You don't have to learn mm. all design. You don't have to be a designer. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure he said this explicitly anywhere. But part of the point is like a lot of design is, is empathy, right? It's like mm. thinking it from the person who's using the thing that you're going to be making, thinking from their perspective. And does this make sense for somebody who wants to do X, Y, Z? Will it be clear enough that this is how they do it? Mm -hmm. And there's some common ideas too, especially with interactive stuff. He points out like, don't forget about when something's loading or when it's empty, when there's no data in there or when it breaks, an error. Mm -hmm. And so he points to like, hey, part of it is spend some time learning the design fundamentals. It doesn't have to be everything. It doesn't have to be super detailed. You don't have to go full in on it, but pay attention to some good design. And part of it is steal some of that good design, which I think is great advice. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I can get on board with Which, that. Which, to clarify, when we say steal, we don't mean copy and paste their code. Yeah. It means look at something that inspires you and be like, oh, I could use this piece of that, or I could use the idea of that, and then do it yourself. Yeah. And often, I say this and have said this a lot with fonts, too, especially with beginning type design. It's very similar of, like, steal the idea, don't steal the thing. Yes. I can condone that. So essentially he's saying they're great, but they're almost too easy and it makes everything look too similar. And it's not that crazy to learn a little bit of the fundamentals of design and steal some good ideas. Yeah, I can see that applying to other elements of the design world. It's like if we all had 100 stock photos that we could use, we all, every designer decided to use from that 100 photo library, it'd be a little sad, it'd be a little yeah. same, same. Right. And pick up a camera and see what you could do yourself. I mean, not to discredit any photographers, but just the closest analogy I could give everyone. All right. Last link. We're showing off a typeface, which I feel like we don't do that much in our links every week because we often have our typefaces saved for our members. But this one's extra fun, and it's not a retail right. font. The, the members get fun fonts every week, but occasionally we just have an overload, and we're like, everybody can yeah. see one of these. Everyone gets a good font. I don't think this one's a retail font. I believe it was created in-house as a proprietary and exclusive typeface for an all-female, young, Brazilian, and diversity-focused branding consultancy. The font family is called Anna Banana. It was designed to start a dialogue, as they say, um, whether that's through social media or lengthy business contracts. It speaks in a clear, fun, interesting, and unexpected way. It's a hefty font for an in-house font. My gosh. There are nine weights and a display style. Some visual descriptors can give you is there's the classic 2022 ink trap incorporated in a lot of these letter forms. There's some bell-bottom-esque bottoms to the end of the stems of the lowercase letters, which I also think is gaining in popularity. I do have to say, it's quite readable at small sizes. They do a really good job of adjusting it optically when you see it in the kind of book. 
weight. I am impressed with that too. At first I was like, wait, really? It's for body too? And then I realized I was reading it in the body and I was like, oh, that really works. Yeah. It's exciting to see like those typefaces that can really feel out there and almost impossible that you could derive a text typeface from get its own love, even in the small sizes. So yeah, I could see how this could work very well for a branding consultancy agency. Just wild that people are doing in-house typefaces. I know it's wild. I I did have a little bit of an aha moment, yeah. uh, kind of halfway through the page ish. There's like mock-ups of posters on the wall with a giant ampersand Mm -hmm. and next Mm -hmm. to it, it took me a second to realize it's like an image of a banana, Mm -hmm. but the goofiness of that illustration, once you realize that that's the banana, it's like, Oh, I really see how they took inspiration from that shape and applied it to the whole font. And it makes it really cute and cool and interesting. Yeah. I love it when people will really intentionally match an icon style to the quirkiness, whatever type it belongs with. Because not necessary, but I think always just adds a level of finesse to it. Also, shout out to the double story G. You see it in the word big. There's one that says big, black, beautiful. And it's just like this beautiful, thick, but swooping, curvy, adorable foxtail shape. Yeah, which you wouldn't like immediately think would go with everything else, but it does. It's simpatico with the rest of the design. It's nice. Simpatico. Simpatico. All right. Fun new find over there. Definitely check it out for some inspiration. I think we're ready to do do some deep dive in into the Adobe Fonts Empire. <laughs> All right, let's let's get in there. <laughs> okay. So break it down. Tell us some history. I'll be upfront. There's not that much robust history, but some interesting (laughs) history tidbits that I didn't know that I think can help inform some things about Adobe fonts because I interact with Adobe fonts on a near daily basis uh, with my design work. And it's just good to know what's happening behind the scenes. So Adobe fonts has not been in its current state for a very long time. Some of you might remember that before Adobe Fonts, there was Typekit, and that was part of Adobe, but there was also a time when it was independent of Adobe, which I actually didn't know. So Typekit, it was launched by Small Batch Inc. in 2009, and Small Batch was a company run by the creators of the Google Analytics service. And Micah, you mentioned this was a pretty revolutionary thing for, for using fonts at the time? Yeah, so I can't say I was like friends with Typekit in the beginning, but they contacted us in the beginning. And uh, we kind of had like a special deal with them to make sure that the league fonts were free to use, which I don't think they had before that. But Typekit, when it launched, I mean, what's interesting now is like if you go to Google Fonts and you embed with Google Fonts, it's using CSS. It gives you code to slap CSS on your page. At the time, Mm -hmm. that wasn't really an okay way to do it, I guess, because if you had the CSS, you could very easily steal the font files. And the majority Mm -hmm. of fonts that Typekit was using were custom fonts that were for sale. And so everyone was very worried about being able to steal font files. And so they came up with this very clever and revolutionary idea at the time. And I believe they were the first to do it where they use JavaScript and you would paste the JavaScript snippet on the page, which then they would give you a custom JavaScript snippet per 
site or like mm-hmm. font package. And so it would use the ID of the JavaScript and then the website that you had to save on Typekit and make sure that the website matched the website it was calling from. And if all of that seemed okay, the JavaScript would like switch it out with the CSS. So you never mm-hmm. actually interacted with CSS or the font files. And that was like one of the reasons that it got successful in the first place was because it was like security through obscurity where you wow. never knew that the font files were there. And so a lot of the font vendors, the foundry vendors that were, when the league started, afraid to let custom fonts be used on websites, Typekit came through and they were like, we have a solution for that, which now makes sense. I didn't know that they had started Google Analytics back in the day. Yeah. But now that makes sense because that was how Google Analytics was like, they did some custom JavaScript stuff. No wonder they had that idea. So when they contacted us of like, hey, can we get the league fonts on there? We just had to be like, yeah, but you got to build like a free section. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay. And then that ended up helping their business too, having like a section for free fonts. I knew you were going to have some good behind the scenes insight into this. Because <laughs> I'm old and I lived it. <laughs> I love that. No, that's super helpful backstory. Because in 2011, Typekit was acquired by Adobe. So I went back and saw some press releases from the time. The people running Typekit from Small Batch very gracefully handed it over. They said, you know, we're happy that Typekit's like going in Adobe's hands. There was some comments also kind of being from the general public in the industry being like, no, don't give it to Adobe. You know, they're going to like figure out some way to capitalize on this and make people in the industry's lives harder. So there's definitely some mixed reactions when this happened in 2011. Kind of reminded me a little bit about the community's reaction to Figma being acquired Mm. by Adobe as well. Some things just don't change. So that happened in 2011. And that's kind of when Typekit came onto my radar because I remember, I think it was included with my Adobe subscription in the following years when when I had that. And so I didn't use Typekit that much, to be honest. I found there to be like pretty limited amount of fonts when it first came on the scene. So I didn't pay that much attention to it until down the line, 2018, Typekit's name gets changed to Adobe Fonts. And with that, a really big interface change happened and a few other features. So with 2018 name change, there was 3,000 more fonts that were being added to the library. The library was growing robustly. They were putting in a lot of effort to showcase what fonts they had in their library. They started these things called font packs where they had different designers curate fonts that they could imagine using in certain projects. They were doing a lot more to market what they had to offer. And I think this is really when Adobe Fonts really hit the ground running for the design industry. I think they got a lot of designers to go under their wing. And there was a few other changes from Typekit to Adobe Fonts besides just the name change. There was no more sync limits. Used to have a limitation as to how many fonts you could sync. Now you could activate as many as you needed. I guess there was no more web font page view and domain limits. And there was no more web-only fonts. So all the fonts in the library could be used for web and desktop. And also, you know, with Adobe Fonts, it's just the singular licensing parameter, which it makes it easy for a lot of designers when they're trying to choose their fonts in a library, not necessarily having to think about um, licensing requirements when using Adobe Fonts. So yeah, I mean, that was a pretty pretty big change in 2018. And I remember I was working in the events industry, so 
all the fonts on our server were super bootleg and totally illegal. <laughs> so I was really trying to encourage people to use Adobe fonts because it gave us access to contemporary type designs that weren't fishy and weren't downloaded in a scary way. <laughs> and then I've continued to use them through in the past few years. And I think they've become really close with my day-to-day just like work processes as a designer. And I also want to talk a little bit about the pricing model for that. You know, designers have to get paid if they're being offered on Adobe fonts and how things have kind of shifted the way people work and also some precautions I think we should keep in mind with Adobe fonts as well. But I want to open this up if you want to jump in on any thoughts on what we just covered. I mean, I guess there are some details that kind of felt revolutionary at the time when I was witnessing them happen. One was... A, Typekit started as web fonts, purely web fonts. And so when it was Adobe, even when it moved over to Adobe, it was still just web fonts for a really long time. Mm. And the addition of desktop fonts was, you know, I wasn't like behind the scenes or anything, but it, it was carefully planned because it meant syncing the font files to your computer and having to have the ability to unsync them if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And so similarly, how people were afraid of custom fonts being stolen from embedding in websites, they were way more afraid of having some app that would just put the font on your computer and then you quit Adobe and you stole the font. Yeah. I don't know all of the details behind the technology of of that behind the scenes kind of syncing engine or anything like that, but I do know that that was cautiously approached for a very Mm. long time before they made it part of the part of the package and now it's just like such a normal feature yeah you go into photoshop and you're like oh i want that font on Mm -hmm. but at the time that too was pretty revolutionary and honestly typekit was a huge deal before adobe and that was similar to figma like that is why they wanted it for sure because of Mm -hmm. the, the clout of that solution so it's kind of interesting I was trying to go back and look on Wayback Machine and try to remember what the pricing was. Mm. Um, oh, that was the other thing, too. Yeah, there was a minute in the transition when Adobe Fonts was still a standalone product. It wasn't part of the Creative Cloud like you were talking about. And you could still just have a separate Adobe Fonts. I think there was a while, too, where I subscribed just to Adobe Fonts because I wanted to keep my websites up. But I wasn't using Photoshop or Lightroom or any of the other things at the time. And so for a while, that was at least an option. Yeah. I remember when I first discovered like the syncing feature, that felt really different and weird. And I was just like, it was kind of like when streaming first happened where mm, you're not, yeah. you're like not owning it, but you get access to it. It feels miraculous in a way. Like you don't have to be labor over, am I going to purchase this typeface? Um, am I going to use it enough to justify it? The purchase, it definitely shifts people's mindset when they're using the fonts in Adobe fonts. Which I've never really investigated the technology behind it mm-hmm. because operating systems are very unadvanced with font technology. You put the font file in a particular folder on your computer and it's installed. You take it out of that folder and it's not installed anymore. Yeah. So like they must be doing something interesting. I presume more than just that because otherwise mm-hmm. that'd be really easy to hack, right? Like you just yeah. install the whole library and then uninstall the app so they must have some clever mechanism to like safeguard deleting those files if necessary yeah no that's a good point i never even thought about that well i think other things that we don't really think about on the designer side but 
I find very fascinating is how type designers get paid out. It's not as simple as buying something like a retail font. I think we've maybe touched on this, but I just want to touch on it again in this podcast that the way Adobe Fonts works, it's like Spotify, you know, where royalties are being paid out. They're being tracked and royalties are being paid out as fonts get used. The moment you sync a font, that contributes to how much royalties get paid out as well as the length of time you have a font synced. So if you like have your friends in the type design world, you want to help them out, sync all their fonts and leave them sync forever. <laughs> Do I know how much money that is? Absolutely not. There's lots of opaqueness there. Well, I am fairly certain it's negotiated per person or foundry. I don't think it's Interesting. the same across the board. I know some people who have certain fonts that they make more money than other people do. Mm, okay. I see you, Micah, coming in with the juicy <laughs> details. Unfortunately, none of them are us, which honestly, I'm trying to blow anything up, but I struggled for a long time to see if that was a way that the league could get funding because back in the day, there are some league fonts on Adobe, right? And actually, I think we got an email this week about, hey, could you put more of your fonts on Adobe? Which is interesting. And for a long time, the negotiation that we had with Typekit was, we'll have them on there only if absolutely anybody can access them for free without paying any money. Mm -hmm. When Adobe took that over, that stayed true for a while until the only way you could access Adobe fonts was by paying for the Creative Cloud subscription. And so then I was like, well, shoot, people are paying you to access our fonts, which doesn't seem quite above board to me. Uh, and we, we never entirely got that resolved, I suppose. But I mean, that wasn't what I was referencing either. Like there, there are people who have paid fonts that make more than other paid fonts is what I was trying to say. Before. Yeah. But now it's kind of like a weird gray area that I'm. I'm personally not super comfortable with, but I was hoping that that could be a thing where like, hey, basically there's a pool of money that they set aside that they make from Adobe to pay out type foundries. And it's like you were saying, it's based on syncs and web views. Oh, sorry. Yeah, web views. Good to know. And so obviously the numbers, I'm just about to make up some random numbers, but if it's like, you know, 0. 0.00002 cents per web view or per sync, if your website gets a lot of traffic, you'll make more money. Or if mm -hmm. a website that is using your font gets a lot of traffic, then you'll make more money, right? Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you know, I thought maybe that could help fund making new fonts for the league or, or maintaining yeah. our operations or anything, because it depends on what everybody else does. But we get a million something a month, more than that. Actually, I have the numbers in front of us. Okay, so they have number of in-app users, which they count, number of new activations, which is what you're talking about with the syncing, mm -hmm. and then number of page views. So it's probably more like, like I'm looking at the last 30 days, it's like somewhere between one and a half and two million usages for just the league fonts. That's hardcore. And I, I'm sure ours are not the most popular on the platform. You can imagine like even something like whatever fonts the New York Times uses. They were like a historic client of Typekit once upon a time, and I'm sure they still use it. If your font is the one that the designers use on a site like that, I don't yeah. know, you could make some pretty good money. Yeah, and I think that's something that's definitely being considered by type designers. Yes, you're not making as much money per usage, 
but the amount of audience members that can potentially use your font is just massive and is at scales that previously were kind of unreachable by by some indie foundries, let's say. Interesting detail that I think you only know from the font foundry side is that it's not per family, it is per style. Per style. Yeah. And so that- if a website is using just Roman and you're making a thousand dollars a month from that. If they add in an italic for their body copy, you could suddenly be making 2000 Yeah, it's definitely a very detailed system of organization. I thought it was interesting if anyone listened to David Jonathan Ross's interview last week. He said Adobe Fonts actually revived a typeface that was kind of left to the wayside for him. He had a typeface Condor, which was designed many years ago and was getting not very many retail licenses bought. But when Adobe Fonts included in their library, he said it like got the second life because of the mm. ac- the amount of people that now had access to just trying it out um, and using it, which I find very interesting. I also want to note that once you are with Adobe Fonts, if you're offering your fonts with Adobe Fonts, it's not a permanent deal. I think in 2020, there was kind of a significant amount of fonts that left Adobe Fonts. I don't know the exact details, but there were some pretty big heavyweights in there. I think Matthew Carter's foundry was one of them that retired some of their fonts as well. I think Fair Jones, which I didn't realize they were even on there in the first place. So something to just be wary about when you do use Adobe fonts is it's possible that today they'll be there. Maybe down the line, it's not guaranteed. Well, that's a little bit of a misnomer. They've been really good about warning about deprecations far in advance and, and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's it's like a reliable service, but you're right. There was like a mass exodus from Adobe fonts because they tried to, I don't know all the details, but they tried to renegotiate a lot of big contracts and wanted to pay a lot less. And a lot of those type designers were like, mm, uh, no thanks. And so they left. That's really interesting insight. And I think many people that already use Adobe Fonts know that if you're handing over a working file, let's say Illustrator, Photoshop, InDesign to a client and it's using Adobe Fonts, you have to make sure they have Creative Cloud to be able to edit those documents to access Adobe Fonts. And similar guidance on their web fonts is we were looking into this. You really should have your own Adobe ID if you're to use Adobe Web Fonts. So handing things over to clients the protocol you're supposed to do is make sure your client has an Adobe ID to continue to manage their website and those Adobe fonts. Which I was saying before this research, I did not know. It was a thing that I always did for my clients because I didn't want someone else's client to depend on my personal account. Like if I decided to stop paying for Adobe, their website would break. So I was always ahead of the game for that reason. But Mm -hmm. I didn't know that the license says you are supposed to do this. And I'm sure not everybody's doing that. But uh, and and we were talking to like, you know, I don't know how they would enforce it. I'm sure it's technically feasible to enforce it, but they're not gonna. Yeah, so I found that. Kind of interesting. So, I mean, like personally, as someone that uses Adobe fonts all the time, like it's it's certainly been an added benefit. But I also think we need to look at any system that is making many millions of dollars uh, constructively <laughs> and, you know, just examine it from all sides. Yeah. That's how I'll this finish was, this. This was a fun deep dive. That was good. There was a little <laughs> bit of history. There was a little bit of like font foundry detail, a little bit of designer detail, a little bit of licensing. 
It was that was good. That was a good list. I'm so glad you brought all the type kit wisdom. I was some really good backstory and some good reasons. It is kind of hard to find. Yeah. It was honestly a long time ago. <laughs> they started <laughs> yeah. like roughly when we were starting the league. It was pretty much the similar timing. So like that was that was a while ago. I think you did great. Thanks, my God. Thanks for all of your additions and insights. It was lovely to hear and talk with you. Uh, we should warn that soon. Are, are we doing a slight break for the holiday? Yes. Next week, we will not be releasing an episode because it's Thanksgiving in America. So mm-hmm. you guys should all be either stuffing your face or getting some really good deals. <laughs> <laughs> weird, are- weird conflicting holiday on many grounds. Uh However, it's nice to take a break for everybody's mental health. <laughs> Olivia's a big supporter of mental health. She's always the one saying, hey, let's take a break. So we're going to take a little break. Just one week. after. Yeah. And we're going to finish off the years with some really, really fun episodes. So Finish off the year. Oh, my gosh. I can't even. Yeah. Don't go far. We're going to be back. It's only a week. All right. Well, in the meantime, you know the drill. Doodle-doo. 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 Doodle